2: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host today on the New Books in Israel Studies channel, Ari Barbalat. Today I have the honor and blessing of engaging in a dialogue with the renowned Israeli writer Gil Chovav. We will be in dialogue today regarding his new memoir, Candies from Heaven, published by Green Bean Books. 2022. Gil, thank you for your time, thank you for your availability, and thank you for this amazing book. It was such a beautiful read.
1: Thank you very much. I'm, I'm honored to be here.
2: To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the writer and cook you would later become?
1: Um. So, I'm 60 years old. I was born in Jerusalem and brought up in Jerusalem. I lived in Jerusalem until I finished my um, degree in the Hebrew U. So when I was 25, I left to Tel Aviv. Um, It's it's a different Jerusalem. It's a Jerusalem that does not exist anymore. When I was growing up in Jerusalem in the 60s and 70s, it was a very... Um, I would say cosmopolitan city, it was really the center of Israel. Nowadays, uh, Jerusalem may be the capital, but of course Tel Aviv is the center of Israel. Uh, but at the time, it seemed like it was Jerusalem was the capital of the world, or at least we believed it was. It was a tiny city, very naive, but we were sure that, that you know, it's all about us. And I grew up in a sort of a special family because first of all, it's a racial mix. So my father is of Yemenite uh, descent. My mother is half Ashkenazi and half Sephardi, half Lithuanian and half Tunisian and Spanish. And um, we lived in a clan like, like Sephardi families do. So we lived in a big house Uh, two big apartments. In one apartment, it was my parents, my brother, myself, and my maternal grandmother, that as it was put to us, she did not live with us, we lived with her. And in the adjacent apartment, it was my aunt and uncle and their three children. And in every apartment, two maids and dogs and cats, and everybody's running in the staircase with pots in their hands and rolls it up in their hair. It was very warm and colorful, and I think that this is what I write about, and this is where I go back to when I write. So this memoir, "Candy's from Heaven, is the middle memoir of the Jerusalem trilogy. I wrote three memoirs in the course of 20 years. This is the middle one that was translated to English and Chinese, by the way, and uh, and it's all about them. It's about my, my relatives. Most of them are not with me anymore, unfortunately. And about a Jerusalem that I really, really miss, but uh, I cannot find anymore except for here.
2: Thank you. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers?
1: Ah, this is very clear. It's It's revenge, of course. I never wanted to become a writer. I never wanted to write books. But um, my family, especially the women in my family, who were sure that they were nobility and aristocracy, kept telling me that I'm the writer of the family, that I should, you know, I should write about them, people should know about them, etc. And I didn't want to. Eventually, I said, "How do I get rid of them?" I said, "I'll write such a nasty book that they'll regret it." I wrote three memoirs. They loved each and every one of them. Some, most of the stories really did happen, but as I say, some of them could have happened. They just didn't have the, the the chance to happen, but they could have. They say that they remember everything. I say, no, but I invented this one. No, 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 we remember it happened. So it's, it's a revenge that turns sour. I, I try to make them regret, but they did not.
2: What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue?
1: Um, I really don't know, because I guess that each and every person takes whatever he or she are looking for. I can tell you that the response that I love the most when I get to my books, and I, I get it quite often, is that people tell me that they read the books when they were recovering, either from illness or, God forbid, from a loss or from a broken heart, because the books are filled with optimism and love and uh, like mutual responsibility that that you can find in in families. And uh, for me, it was very consoling to write about the love of my family and about how I felt protected, even though I wasn't, you know, the most brilliant kid and not a a good sportsman, of course, and, uh, you know, sort of whitish and and, and skinny and... ah. But they all told me that I was a prince. And I think that it shines through the books that if you love someone enough, they would feel that they are princes. And this self-entitlement I take with myself to the world. My, my partner, Danny, my partner of 34 years always looks at me and tells me, but why do you think that you're such a star? You're not. And I say, but my mother told me I am. So, So this is something that I hope that people can take from the book.
2: In light of what you just alluded to, what does your book teach us about suffering trauma and resilience? Why does it resonate with people who have experienced loss? in such a profound way?
1: Because um, I think that once you read the stories, it becomes clear to you that every problem has a solution. It becomes clear to you that you don't have to be rich to love, you don't have to be anything special in order to be loved. Love is just there. And as my grandmother told me, God Is very generous. It is just up to us to open our hand and we will get. And another saying that, uh, Sephardi saying that my grandmother always recited and, and, and made me believe in. And it's actually the name of the third book in the trilogy. It's called 24 Doors. And it's God never shuts a window before he opens 24 doors. So there's always a chance. There's always hope. I wouldn't go as far as, you know, being so American as saying, you know, if you dream, your dream will come true. I'm not sure that that is true. But if you are, if you give optimism a chance, if you give love a chance, good things will follow.
2: Can you say more about what your book teaches us about love? What role does love play in your memoir?
1: So there are very different kinds of love. The love I felt as a child was sort of a protective love. As I mentioned, I was a frail, skinny Jerusalemite, cross-eyed, not good in sports. And I think that my mother, my father, my grandmother, my aunt, they all felt they had to kneel to me. They had like to 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 take special care of me. I was a very good student. I had friends. It's not that I was, you know. but um, I think they loved me more. And uh, so this kind of love, which is very protective, um always always walks with me in the world. I carry it with me in my heart. and I always know that if things will go wrong, Someone will do something good to me. The first story in the book, uh, the book starts with a story from my the Yemenite side of my family, uh, that in the 50s, in the austerity era, in, in the young Israel, Israel was established in 1948 and was a very very poor state. And one of my aunts, I have five aunts and two uncle and one uncle from. Uh, the Yemenite side, uh, Yemenite families are always big. So uh, one of my aunts was living in the deep south of Israel in a kibbutz, in a very poor kibbutz. And the children of the kibbutz did not have candy. And they used to eat uh, dung beetles. Apparently they are sweet, I never tried, but they used to hunt them and eat them. And my aunt was shocked, was shocked that her daughter eats beetles. And my aunt, whom we called the Cossack, because she was always very, you know, brave and happy and singing, and was a bit depressed. And her her brother, not my father, but my father's brother, who was uh, the commander of the very southern tip of Israel of Elat, uh, heard that that his sister is sad. The Cossack is sad, and he stole. An airplane and flew over to her kibbutz and flew over the kibbutz and threw a bag of candies from the air on the kibbutz and shouted back at the time it was you know it wasn't jet uh, airplanes it was very simple airplanes so you could hear him shout saying Hadassah that's her name Hadassah don't be sad and here is candy for all the children and He told me later on, years later, he told me, what does it mean to be an officer in the IDF, in the Israeli army? Respect, women, you know, it means everything. But most of all, and first of all, it means that you have to be a mensch. You have to be a gentleman. You have to see to it that your sister is not depressed. And for me, it was a very, very important lesson for life, that we should take care of those who are maybe weaker than we are, but also that we should know that we are taken care of and that, you know, your friends, your loved ones always keep an eye on you and make sure that you're okay. And uh, I hope that, that, that Danny, my partner, and myself are bringing up our daughter this way. She's already 20. I hope she got it this message from me and I hope she she lives on to this legacy and I hope that she takes care of people when she is a bit older.
2: What role does economics play in your memoir? You described the austerity that your family experienced decades ago. What does your memoir reveal about the economic aspects of Israeli social history and Israeli culinary history as you and your family experienced it?
1: So, most of the stories take place in the late 60s and early 70s, when Israel was still, I wouldn't say poor, but very modest and quite socialist. But as I come, again, from a mixed family and a special family, we were quite well-to-do. Both my parents were very high up in the Israeli radio and... um, we ate, we dined in restaurants twice or thrice a week, which was really, really rare in Israel. It was almost impolite to go to restaurants. And we, we traveled the world, etc. So, and we had two maids. So I sort of grew up like a prince, but still a very modest prince. So the food we ate at home, even though we had enough, the food was very, very, very simple, slash naive, slash primitive. And I have chef friends, I'm not a chef, I'm a restaurant critic, I never studied cookery, I never worked in a restaurant, I write about restaurants. I have many chef friends who asked me, they said, you know, we love the stories, but the, the, the recipes are so plain and simple and basic, why can't you take like old recipes? This is very fashionable nowadays to say, I take the basic old recipes, but I make them, I bring them up to date. I make them with better ingredients, with better methods, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, no, 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 no. I wanted to keep it as basic as it was. I wanted it to be true. I wanted people to read about a family, a well-to-do family that, for lunch has okra and rice. That's it. Um, this is how I grew up, and I I I long for this kind of food. This is what I cook most of the time, and I really respect people who keep these traditions. You know, I have a I have a friend who went to study at the CIA, at the Culinary Institute of of America, and came back to Israel like you know, a big big chef, and then he opened a restaurant, a very hip restaurant in Tel Aviv. And um, he told his grandmother that in his very shishi restaurant, he wants to serve her noodle kugel. She had a very simple noodle kugel. And he told her that, uh, he he said, please give me the recipe. Again, you know, I have sous-chefs and I have sous-vide and I have this and I have that. I'll make it my own. I'll make it very elaborate, but it will be your recipe. And his grandmother told him Forget about it. You're not getting the recipe. You'll ruin it. I'm sure that you'll use chicken stock instead of chicken powder. I don't want you to ruin the recipe. You need to use chicken powder in order to make this recipe. You don't want to? Find another recipe. And I really like these elderly women who stick to their tradition. And I'm I hope that I am an elderly woman myself.
2: How do you balance your... Sephardi identity, your Yemenite identity, and your Israeli identity. What are the conflicts and commonalities between these different identities as they show up in your life and show up in your memoir? How do they influence the person you are and person you become?
1: I don't see conflicts. I do see um, a rainbow. Uh, so, yes, I'm a canine dog. I'm totally mixed. I'm half Yemenite, a quarter Lithuanian, one-eighth Tunisian, and one-eighth Sephardi. And uh, Israel is getting more and more like this, you know, where you have mixed marriages between communities, Jewish communities mostly, and, and people become of mixed origins. In my childhood, there was a clear... Uh, difference between my father's side of the family and my mother's side of the family. Everybody lived in peace. Everybody loved one another. The Yemenite side, as Yemenites are, was very poor. And the um, Ashkenazi slash Sephardi side was very rich. So, you know, I had one grandmother, my, my maternal grandmother, whom we lived with, who was a woman of the world who traveled in the b- b- beginning of the 20th century to Australia and to Japan and to the States and to this and to that, and who spoke six languages, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And I had my paternal grandmother, the Yemenite, who was the janitor in my school. So totally different women, both of them noble women, both of them women whom I admired. And, and, and you know, it's funny, I wrote more about my maternal grandmother simply because, you know, I shared the same dwelling with her. But years later, after I was done with the trilogy, I told myself, you know, I haven't, I haven't done enough to commemorate my paternal grandmother, this brave, poor, hardworking woman who was such an inspiration to all of us. And, And yes, I wrote about her quite a few stories, but that's not enough. And I said, what would I do? So what I do right now, let's say for the past decade, I have this tradition of bringing her recipes to the globe, all over the world. Wherever I go, I cook. The first ever Yemenite dinner in, you name it, in Montevideo, in Warsaw, in Berlin, in uh, New York, in uh, Canberra, wherever. And people are always shocked because many people do not know Yemenite food, which is very good and very basic. And I feel that it's her triumph, that this wonderful janitor with her light blue apron Gets to the world, and uh, from the clouds, she's overseeing me cooking her recipes.
2: Can you tell us about your relationship with the Betar Yerushalayim soccer team? Can you describe <laughs> the allusions to Betar in your book. Why did you relate to soccer so intimately?
1: So, soccer was the national sport of Israel, it still is. And uh, in Jerusalem, you had Two teams, Beitar, which is the team, let's say, of the capitalists, and Hapoel, which is the team of the socialists. Um, my family was, you know, clearly a capitalist family, and we were all supporters of Beitar Yerushalayim, of course. Now, you know, in all of my life, I've been to two soccer games. I find it amazingly boring. Recently, there was this World Cup. I went to sleep in the middle of the final game. I said, who wants to see this? This is so boring. So it's not that I'm really interested in in soccer, but it's so much bigger than that. So we were always, you know, for us, a Shabbat, usually soccer games are on Shabbat. So a Shabbat where Betar lost, or even worse that Hapoel won was a black Shabbat. Years later, it became more political and Betar now is, I would say the soccer team of the extreme right in Israel. So of course I left Betar, you know, I slammed the door. I'm no longer a supporter of Betar. I became a supporter of an Arab uh, soccer team that plays in Israel, Sahnin. And I try to, to you know, to, to stay away from Betar. I do not respect their values and uh, I'm not with them. But at the yeah. time it was much more naive and Betar meant a lot to us.
2: What schools did you attend when you were younger? What were your favorite subjects? Why did you enjoy them? Can you tell us about yourself as a student?
1: I was a very good student. I was a very good kid. Both, both of us, my brother and myself, my elder brother and myself were, I always say we were not well educated. We were tamed. We, it was, everybody was on us, you know, my mother, my father, my grandmother, my aunt, my uncle, everybody was seeing that we would become uh, like proper gentlemen. And um, so I was a good student, I never liked school, I I was very friendly, I had a lot of friends, but uh, it was always much, much, much more fun to stay at home. favorite subjects of course of course math is the enemy but uh, i like you know whatever was the humanities like history and uh, the writing and the, all sorts of stuff in high school uh, i studied arabic and i loved it you know i had these wonderful wonderful elderly prof- t- professor teachers in high school all of them hungarians who studied Arabic with, you know, they knew Arabic more better than Muhammad, I would assume. And they always told us, if you seek beauty, if you seek wisdom, if you seek truth, go to Arabic. And they were right it's the most beautiful language and I, uh, I can read write and speak arabic up until today and i'm ever so thankful
2: how was shabbat celebrated in your home what was a t- typical shabbat dinner like
1: uh, we did not celebrate shabbat we're secular okay, okay. Uh, no shabbat dinners holidays were there but you know uh on yom kippur my mother used to fast but she had agreements with god that she may drink coffee, and she may do this, and she may do that. So on Passover, when my mother decided that we won't have bread at home, and I said, what do you mean we won't have bread at home? Of course we would. I said, no, God doesn't uh, look at it uh, in, a, in the right way. I said, you had an agreement with him on Yom Kippur, now make an agreement with him about that I can have bread on Passover. She said, no, he's busy, but you know, the next day, I found my my father eating bread in the pantry. So it was clear that uh, nobody is religious at home. We were not religious. We still are not, and uh, we did not celebrate Shabbat in any way. I I didn't have a bar mitzvah. You know, I haven't been to synagogue in my life. We're secular.
2: Many jokes appear in this book. Can you share any of them with us? Can you interpret any of them for us? In what ways do they constitute social criticism? can they be seen as proverbs in any way why are they funny
1: um it would be difficult for me to 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 tell jokes from the book but i can tell you that i think that humor played an immense role in my childhood i was lucky to be born to a father and a mother who had amazing sense of humor and to a grandmother that was an amazing storyteller. She had a good sense of humor, but she was more of a dramatic storyteller. My father was the star of Israel in those years. I'm talking about the 60s when we did not have television yet. Television service started in Israel only in 1968. And my father was the chief news announcer of the Israeli radio. So he was considered the voice of God Everybody was afraid of him. He had a very dramatic voice. Um, He is uh, the person who, during the Six-Day War, announced the the unification, the liberation, the occupation, you call it whatever you wish to, of Jerusalem. Uh, So people really thought that he was God and were afraid of him. But he had the most amazing sense of humor. He was so funny that that you know living with him was was just a treat because we kept laughing and my mom on the other side who was a raving beauty and was my father's boss both at home and in the radio she was above him in the radio um so she was a very big shot in in israeli communications again had a wonderful sense of humor which was a mix of very, very fine and dry humor. And as my grandmother used to to describe her, her daughter, yes, uh, she had the mouth of a 70 year old sailor. So this mix was very inspiring And um, I I didn't have to sweat in order to make the stories in the book funny. It's just, I had, I really described how we live. And it's so unbelievable that it's, you know, that people read it and laugh. But it really happened like it.
2: What were the hardest aspects of life for you as a child, adolescent, teenager, and young adult? What was the biggest adversity you faced growing up? How did you cope? Um,
1: I would say that around the Six-Day War, when I was four years and a half or so, it was frightening to live in Jerusalem. (laughs) Jerusalem was the border, you know. Jerusalem was split. Uh, There was a wall running through the city. On one side it was Jordan, on the other it was uh, Israel. Before the war, there was a a, a two-week period that we call the waiting period, where it was clear that there was going to be a war We just didn't know when it would erupt. And there was a tank parked in our garden. It was really, really, really the border and it was unclear whether we would survive. So as a child, I do remember uh, the anxiety. And the first day of the war, I was in kindergarten. Suddenly the sirens went on and there was, it wasn't an air raid, but it was a bombardment. shells started falling all over the place and I panicked and instead of going to the shelter I rushed from the kindergarten and I ran home home was five minutes away but doing it during a bombardment is quite unpleasant I remember the the smell of fire the smell of gunpowder the sight of balconies collapsing from houses it was really unpleasant and and I rushed home, I rushed to the shelter, my mom was standing at the entrance to the shelter, half in, half out, waiting to see whether any one of her kids would come home. And she hugged me, and she told me, everything is okay, you're home. And I think that whenever I write, and I, you know, I wrote three memoirs, but if you count all the books that I wrote, I've written, I would assume, almost 20 books now. Whenever I write, I'm at that moment. I'm in this hug. I can smell the gunpowder. I can smell my mother's perfume. This is where I am when I'm writing. So I would say that this is the trauma of of, of my childhood. But of course there were many sunny days and wonderful days too. And the book is both about the difficult times and the happy times but mostly about the belief that happy times will win.
2: Who were your personal role models growing up? What did you learn from them? What did you admire about them?
1: I would say that my role model was my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. She was already, let's say at the autumn of her life. I was just starting spring so it was, it was very natural for us to cling together. And uh, through her, I think that I discovered the world. Through her stories, through her amazing love story that, that, that happened, you know, in the beginning of the 20th century. I just finished writing a book about the love story between my grandfather and my grandmother through their love letters that, that are kept with me. And um, through her knowledge, through her wisdom, through her love of books, um, it seemed that she lived such a grand life that that a, a, a frail, you know, nerdy kid had so much to gain from. So she would tell me stories and she would take care of me and um, And for me, it was everything. But having said that, people always think that that she taught me how to cook as well, because what I do is that, you know, I bring to the world the recipes of my paternal grandmother, of the Yemenite grandmother, but the recipes in the book are the recipes of my uh, Sephardi grandmother, of my maternal grandmother. She never let me in the kitchen with Sephardi, families, men in the kitchen bring only two things, dirt and luck. So she never let me into the kitchen. She would be there with our two maids and whenever I would try to intrude or infiltrate into the kitchen, she would just chase me away with a broom. And uh, the day she died when I was uh, almost 20, that was the day I started cooking. I started cooking just to remember her flavor. So, uh, this is another, if you hear explosions, it's not a bombardment. We're having a thunderstorm, which is wonderful. So, um, so for me, again, her taste is something that is very dear to me.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: Why did you select the title "Candies from Heaven"? What does it signify?
1: It's it, it, as I told you. It's the story about my uncle flying over to my aunt's kibbutz to throw candies at her uh, from the skies just just to make sure that she's not sad. And again, it was a very important lesson for life that even when things look rough and even when you're down and even when you're alone, you should know that somehow somebody will come over with an airplane and throw candies at you. And it happened many times in my life. I really
2: believe it. In what ways did your family members who were Yemenite Jews experience stereotypes or stigmatization in Israeli society in the 50s, 60s, 70s? How did that impact them?
1: Strangely enough, they did not. I I know that there are cases, of course, where in Israel new immigrants are looked down at, etc. First of all, they were not new immigrants, they 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 immigrated to Palestine by foot from Yemen in mid-19th century. So they were, you know, but all my grandparents from all sides were born in Israel. Uh, and secondly, it's true that they were they were not well to do. I wouldn't say that there was hunger at their home. At my home, there was, you know, there was plenty, but at their home, there was, there was never hunger. There was, they were very uh, of restricted means, I would say, but they always, always felt that they are the landlords of the country and they always volunteered and they always helped new immigrants. And my grandmother, the janitor, when she would finish working at my school would go and teach new immigrants Hebrew or 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 how to deal with, with, you know, the city hall or with paying taxes, et cetera. So I don't believe that in my family that they were discriminated against. It's true that there are stories like this, but uh, fortunately in my family, they did not suffer from it.
2: Can you tell us about your closest friends growing up? What drew you to one another? What influence did these friends have on you? Are you still close with them today?
1: Um, So it was friends from the neighborhood. We lived in a very small alley. And uh, that ended, it was a cul-de-sac and it ended in a sort of a wood. So, and we had a basketball uh, uh, playground, a a soccer ground and uh, So it was all kids from the neighborhood and, of course, kids from kindergarten and school. Um, With most of them, I'm not in touch because we are all scattered around Israel. Almost everybody left Jerusalem. Jerusalem is very different nowadays. Jerusalem is very religious. It's quite a right-wing city, which is... Okay, I believe that right-wing people and religious people should have somewhere to live, but it's it's not it's not where I want to live. So I live in Tel Aviv, and uh, but occasionally I do see them. We were very close knit. We had uh, you know we had our group, and at night, my of course my my brother, my elder brother, who was always much taller than me, much smarter than me, and much 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 more handsome. He was the leader. Uh, he was the chief, and um, we would play at night on the street or in the wood or in the yards of the neighborhood. It was it was a, it was different times. No computers, no television. You know, kids would would run around, and it was very nice. It was very nice. I look at it with warmth in my eyes and my heart.
2: What was your relationship like with your parents when you were younger? what were the most challenging aspects of your home and family for, for you? How did they influence the person you were becoming at the time?
1: I admired both of them, I still do. Um, I think they were different than my brother and myself. They were much wilder. Both of them were extremely beautiful. My mother you know, was considered a goddess My father was a hunk. My mother was very wild. My father was her third husband, and she was eight years older than my father. And I do think that both of them had many affairs, and we sort of understood it as children, but they were so casual about it that it looked um, okay. Now, I'm totally different. You know, I'm such a bourgeois. And I, I look at them and I say, "Wow, they really knew how to live." I mean, they were they were out there, and uh, they were both stars. People admired them. They we would walk the street, and people would just follow them with their gaze. So it was sort of being, uh, you know, the child of, of of royalty or something. Not that I believe in aristocracy or anything like it but um, they carried themselves like they deserved it. And they did, they were very special people. So, and on the other hand, as I said, they had the most amazing sense of humor and, and never ending love towards myself and my brother. It was always clear that whenever there was a feud at school with a teacher, they would always support us. I'll give you an example. As I told you, I never liked going to school. So in in, let's say elementary school, what can I do? I had to go to school. But later on, when I grew a bit older, I learned that the the easy way to to not go to school is to forge a note from my mom to the teacher saying that I'm sick and I would do it twice a week at least. One day I come to school, the teacher says, Gilly, why weren't you at school yesterday? And I said, ah, I was, uh, I was not feeling good. And she said, yes, and did your mom send a note? And I said, yes, and I hand her a note. Of course, I wrote it. And the teacher looks at it and says, your mom didn't write this note. You forged it. Come with me. And she takes me over and we go to the office of the principal and she dials my mom. She calls my mom at the office. Now my mom had three secretaries. My mom was a big shock. So she she moves from one secretary to another And the secretaries tell her, no, no, she's busy, she's busy, and the teacher says, I must speak to her. My mom gets on the phone. The teacher says, Gilly wasn't at school yesterday. I think that you're not aware of it. He handed me a note supposedly written by you. I think that you're unaware of this note. You did not write this note, he did. And my mom immediately told the teacher, are you implying that my son is a liar? Of course I wrote this note, and you would never, ever bother me at my office again. And she hangs up. And when I got home, she told me, Gilly, you want to forge notes? Forge notes. Just avoid spelling mistakes. That's it. So I I really do think that I had esprit, my parents, and uh, it was very inspiring.
2: Can you tell us about your uncle Ami and your aunt Hadassah? What were they like as people? What do they mean to you?
1: So Uncle Ami and Aunt Hadassah are both from the Yemenite side of the family. So as I said, my father had five sisters and one brother. Ami is the one brother. He's the younger brother of my father. Ami was an officer in the IDF. He was in charge of the southern tip of Israel during the uh, late '50s and early '60s, and then he became the security officer of the Jerusalem municipality. And uh, he's still with us; he's still alive, and uh, he's he's a fine gentleman. Again, with a very dry sense of humor, um, I really like him. And we didn't have a lot of 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 officers and army people in the family so it was it was nice to have Amy Hadassa was a power of nature she was always singing she was always running she was always laughing she was always dancing and um, again, it was very, very different from us. We were pale, you know, very polite Jerusalemite children. And Hadassah lived in nature. And, and, and you know, her children were brave and uh, had muscles. And, and they all looked at us. We were a bit strange to them, but 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 they looked at us with love. It was clear that they wanted us to be as brave as they were, which never succeeded, of course, but it was always nice to have such a an optimistic, um, macho aunt. Who, who is Sila
2: Goldwasser? Why is she- ah, She's terrible? invented.
1: <laughs> she's Can invented. I wanted her. to have- Can you tell an, us about the character? An Ashkenazi person in, in the story and uh, some, some of the some of the relative I have invented for for different reasons, Sila Goldwasser, for instance, I wanted to have a nasty Ashkenazi person, and I do not have nasty Ashkenazi persons in my family. So I invented Sila Goldwasser. On the other hand, I wanted to tell horrible stories that really happened about my Yemenite re- uh, aunts. I have five. and the thing is that, when I wrote the books, it was quite a, a few years ago, they were still alive. And I thought that maybe it would offend them if I'll tell horrible stories about them. Stories that really, really, really happened. So I invented a fictional Yemenite aunt called Aunt Shudia. She does not exist. And I told all the horrible stories about Aunt Shudia. And the, story, the, the, the book comes out and I get a phone call from my aunt Hava in Tiberias, one of my father's five sisters, and she says Gili, and I say Hava, and she says, "What have you done?" And I said, "What?" "The Gili, that book of yours." I said, "You always told me to write a book. I didn't want to." She said, "Gili, that horrible Aunt Shulbia. What do you think that people don't understand that it's Hadassah? Hadassah is her sister. And I said, no, Chava, you know, it's writer's privilege. And I said, Gili, I'm very disappointed with you. What, what can I do? I hang up. The minute I hang up, another phone call from Aunt Hadassah in tears. Gili, what have you done to us? I said, wait a minute, I can expect. She said, Chava can't step out of her home. Everybody knows she's Shudia. I said, okay, with that kind of family, I can write any kind of book I wish. So inventing relatives can be very helpful sometimes.
2: And you tell us about. Uncle Shalom Koter, why is he significant?
1: Uh, actually, he isn't. <laughs> he's, it's just, you know, sometimes I brought up uncles and aunts. Again, some of them existed, some, some did not. And, and I wrote little stories about them, but um, um, he's not one of the important members of the family. I, I, I put it this way.
2: And you... Tell us about your aunt Reuma.
1: Ah, she is important. See, so Reuma is an elder sister of my father, so it's from the Yemenite side, and she was the first in the family to get into the radio. She had the voice of I don't I I don't even have a comparison, but people would hear her voice and and chill. I, I, I mean I mean they would freeze. It was so clear. It was like a Uh, an iron string, very, very, very tight. And she had the most perfect Hebrew. She was very, very good looking, very stern, could be very frightening, but had an amazing sense of humor. And um, I I really liked her a lot. Um, And she was also, talk about celebrities. She was the, the... talking clock service so when I was a kid if you wanted to know what time it was you would dial one five later on it became one five five and then you would hear my aunt's voice saying "Uh, the time is nine and seventeen minutes and everybody did it just to hear her voice and uh, so she was a very big star Uh, unfortunately she passed away and uh, uh, but uh, she was an inspiration she was an inspiration. She she and her husband lived in a, a Wingate. Wingate is the sports academy of Israel. Her husband was the head of the sport academy of Israel. So there is a village in Israel, which is a village of sport. Like it's a sport academy. And some people even live in it, the staff of this village. And they had, they still have three children, mean, very sportive children, like Good at any kind of sport and in every summer vacation, our parents just wanted to get rid of us. So they would send us to all their brothers and sisters and relatives all over Israel just to get rid of us because who wants children at home? So we would have to spend one week in Wingate with my aunt and uncle and their three mean children who had all the keys to all the sports stadiums in Wingate and they would take us from one stadium to another to do gymnastics. And I hated it, I hated it, because I wanted to read Little Women. And uh, they would say, no, now you have to swim. How can a Jerusalemite swim? Up until today, I can. I don't drown, but I don't swim. Or now you run, or now you do this. I hated every single second of it.
2: Can you tell us about Uncle Amos? Who is he? Uncle
1: Amos is the painter in the family. So he's married to Aunt Chava. They live in Tiberias. So Chava is a sister of my father. Chava is Yemenite. And Amos is Ashkenazi, and he's a painter. And um, again, they were so um, different from us. I remember when we would go To their home in Tiberias, which was like heaven for us. It was the complete opposite of our home. Our home was proper Jerusalemite home of, you know, people who were big shots in the radio, et cetera, with two maids. And their home was so free. And and I remember the walls were painted red, red. Our walls were painted white and we thought that it was wild, red walls and, and, and you could go barefoot and you, you could, you know, run in the middle of the night to swim in the Sea of Galilee and they had chickens, live chickens in, in the yard. And it was just this amazing sense of freedom that we got only for one week per year. And it was, it was we, we couldn't stop waiting. My brother, who was less optimistic than myself up until today, would always start crying on the way to Tiberias because he said, we're almost there, which means that we are there, which means that we have to leave because vacation is over. So he would cry on the way to our vacation in Tiberias. It was the most brilliant week of the year.
2: Can you tell us about Ant Fortuna?
1: Aunt Fortuna is another fictional aunt. It's it's the other, it's the the fictional aunt from the Sephardi side. Uh, She's based on a few figures that we did have in the family. There is a typecast of a Sephardi widow left with a lot of money uh, who never liked her husband and who hates everybody. This is Anfortuna, and uh, and she stings like a bee. You should really be be very careful of her. On the others, on the other hand, she's very very funny, of course. So we had quite a few relatives like it, and um, they are all put together in the same skin of Anfortuna.
2: Can you tell us about the Yaal volunteer organization? Can you describe this charity for our listeners?
1: So Ya'al was uh, an organization of elderly women who wanted to help and uh, you know Israel was a poor country and uh, there was a lack of working hands and uh, you know people had to do something for the nation so my grandmother volunteered with all her friends all of them very well-read women and women again who saw the world and who visited countries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But once a week in the afternoon, they would sit together and uh, and fold bandages and 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 uh, you know do stuff for hospitals at home. Yeah, so they would eat marzipan or or burekas or very, very, very good stuff that they made talk about whatever happens in Paris right now. When I say right now, it must have been in the 30s, but they thought that the years have not passed. So all the hottest gossip of Paris in the 30s and while folding this stuff, et cetera. And uh, they were sure that they were at the front. They were sure that they were doing something that the state could not live without. And in a sense, they were. And for me, they were my saviors because um, they were always for me. Yes, these elderly women always uh, uh, took care of the youngest, weakest grandchild. So for me, they were heroines and and, and the figures that I have really admired.
2: What were your relationships like with your siblings? How did they evolve? What activities and interests did you share with each other? How were your personalities similar or different? How did your relationship change as you became a teenager and became an adult?
1: Um, I would say that we're all very different. So my mother was the boss of the house and my grandmother was her boss. And my father was, as he said, a tenant because men were not that important. I grew up in a maternal family and and my uncle my my aunt's husband whom who lived in the adjacent apartment again on one side we were supposed to be afraid of him because he was a yekke, a german jew and he was always shouting but again it was clear that he was afraid of his wife and his wife was totally 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 crazy but totally crazy she was the funniest person but she kept doing these wonderful things that that as a child you really admire, but then you look back at them and you say, what? Did she really do that? I'll give you an example. So my grandfather from my mother's side, uh, his name is Itamar Benavi. He is the son of Eliezer Ben Yehuda. So my great-grandfather is Eliezer Ben Yehuda, who revived Hebrew. Um, and my grandfather, Itamar Benavi, was a very important journalist and uh, sort of a semi-politician, etc. but he was known for his charm. So back in the days, in, in let's say in the 70s, there was an award in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament. Once a year, uh, the journalists, the, the political journalists covering the parliament would uh, give a prize to the best to the uh, to the let's say how should i should i put it to the mp that had the best manners that was the, the, like the perfect gentleman which is very uncommon in the israeli parliament so it was very difficult to find gentlemen in the in the knesset in the israeli parliament okay and the, the whole family would be invited to the parliament and there would be a little ceremony and would have rekas. And uh, this member of parliament would get the prize and then we'll wait a year. One day we get to the parliament, I believe I was 10 years old or something like that. And uh, I stand there with my mother and with my aunt and with my grandmother and everybody's talking about what, what the charming person my grandfather was. And there is this Haredi member of parliament who comes to my aunt and tells her Mrs. Raz, their last name was Raz. Mrs. Raz, your husband looks so good. He looks wonderful, he looks so young. Now, you're not supposed to compliment a woman by telling her that her husband looks younger than she is. It's it's a definite no, no. It was even clear to me as a 10 year old kid. And, you know, my aunt is trying to brush that, that, that Haredi MP away from her, saying, yes, yeah, you know, he looks good, I not that good. Yeah, that, that. And, but, but he keeps insisting. How do you keep him so young? He looks so much younger than you are. Didn't... Eventually, my, my aunt had enough of this Haredi Member of Parliament. She looked at him, she grabbed him by the hand and told him, I can do stuff in bed that you won't believe. So he ran away. This is my aunt. So I would say that 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 uh, people in my family were all very different, and from each and every one of them, I got something. Um, now most of them are not with us anymore. You know, had my mother been alive today, she would have been a hundred years old. So um, it's uh, a. Yeah. I, I miss them, but uh, they, they are here. They are with me all the time.
2: What can you tell us about conditions at Kibbutz Revivim, as it is described in your book? How was the kibbutz impacted by the 1948
1: war? So Kibbutz Revivim in the 1948 war was heavily bombarded and uh, living there wasn't fun. Uh, my family did not live there in during the war. They came to the kibbutz after, but the war was a very near and present memory. Um, the kibbutz was very, very, very modest. Again, I write about a family living in the center of Israel, in Jerusalem, in the capital, where everything evol- revolves around us. In the kibbutzim, you know, they were thrown in the desert and uh, tried to do their best and did. And uh, they were very successful. What's funny about the kibbutz, the the book Candies from Heaven starts with a story about kibbutz revivim. It starts with saying, like most of kibbutz revivim kids, my aunt uh, my uh, cousin Daphna really liked eating bugs. The, books, the book comes out and people in uh, Revivim are livid, eating bugs. We never ate bugs. Why did you write that we ate bugs? My cousin, who is a very famous singer in Israel, wrote a piece in the newspaper, in the newspaper saying, excuse me, I grew up in Revivim. I was eating bugs like everybody else. If you wish to forget, it's okay that you wish to forget, but it's totally true. They ate bugs. So I guess that this is the maximum I can tell you about living in Revivim. I I never visited Revivim. I almost, you know, throughout my childhood, I have never been in a kibbutz. We were capitalists. We did not go to kibbutzim. They were socialists. We were against it. But, you know, as it turns, the mother of our daughter, my partner and I have a daughter, and her mom is a kibbutznik. She's from a kibbutz. So now I know that people from kibbutzim are the most wonderful people.
2: Many recipes are presented in this book. Can you share any of them with us? Can you explain their significance? Why are they meaningful to you?
1: So, you know, I thought when I wrote the first memoir, this this one is the second, when I wrote the first memoir, which was something like 25 years ago, I thought that I was inventing a genre of of a memoir in which every story ends with a recipe of what we ate when the story occurred. Turns out that this genre was invented all over the world in many places Ruth Rachel, who was the editor of uh, of Gourmet and the, the, the restaurant critic of the New York Times, etc., wrote a lot of food wars, as we call them. Again, stories with recipes. Um, for me, as I do remember with my taste buds, uh, it's a part of of remembering. So for me, many people told me, you know stories are so well written but you know adding recipes to the stories doesn't it downgrade the book it's not necessarily a fiction book now it's a cookbook first of all i say what's wrong with a cookbook it's it's quite respectable and secondly for me it's a part of the story for me what we ate was very significant and was a very important part of our daily routine The conversations around the table, not necessarily the dining table, because in many cases we ate in the living room and we had a dining room. So, you know, big dinners were held in the dining room. Simple dinners were or lunches were held in the kitchen. So all these conversations around different tables were when life happened. So it was clear to me. But if I want to write about this period, the food is is a very important part of it. And I didn't want to, to leave it out.
2: You describe your ancestors as follows. There's a passage that I'd maybe like to share. You write as Do. follows. Sometime back in the 19th century, a Yemenite man woke up, awoke from his sleep on the outskirts of the garbage dump in Sana'a and decided that the time had come to go up to the land of Israel. Somehow that Yemenite man was my relative, and of course related to King David too, because all Yemenites claim there was a family tree in the synagogue that documented their pedigree, directly connecting them to Rabbi Shalom Shabazi and all the way back through the generations to King David, But that unfortunately this documentation was lost during the travails of wandering through the arabian peninsula on the way to zion we weren't big shots in yemen not the most highly educated in the world and not even goldsmiths we were in fact among the world's poorest the only solid information my father had about the founders of the mahbub family was that his great-grandfather's uncle was a blacksmith who was blind in one eye. In any case, on that morning in the 19th century, a Yemenite man gathered his belongings, his wife, assuming he had only one, or wives, a more realistic assumption, and of course, his children too, and started walking to the Northwest on a path that was supposed to lead them to Jerusalem. All that on foot, of course. They had a donkey, but it carried the father, not their belongings, which were left for the women to bear. After long wanderings, my ancestors reached Jerusalem and discovered that it was impoverished and run down, exactly like San'a. But here no one was awaiting them, not even on the outskirts of the garbage dump. They settled in the village of Silwan, site of the biblical pools of Shiloach. This is from pages 54 and 55. Can you elaborate on this story? Who are you referring to? Can you place the story in context for us?
1: So it's really my father's family. It's his grandparents. So his parents were already born in Palestine. His grandparents walked, walked by foot from Yemen to Palestine, settled in Silwan. Silwan, nowadays, Silwan is in East Jerusalem. At the time, there was a Yemenite neighborhood, Jewish neighborhood in Silwan. It was an Arab village, but there was a Jewish neighborhood inside the village. And later on, they moved from Silwan, which is in the East of Jerusalem to the West of Jerusalem because they wanted to live near a biscuit factory because the broken biscuits were thrown to the garbage and they could uh, hunt them and and eat them and survive. So they were very, 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 very poor. Again, we're talking about a different century with different traditions and beliefs. So the fact that, that he may have had a few wives is totally true. And the fact that they were so poor that they ate from the garbage wasn't, didn't impress anyone and they did not feel that they were deprived, they just knew that they were poor. And um, the fact that people walked from one country to another, uh, yes, they were Zionists and they, this is very early Zionism, but yes, they wanted to to, to come to Palestine to live in Jerusalem and, and uh, they took their destiny in their hands and they walked to Jerusalem. I, I find it fascinating. So from my Ashkenazi side, also my, my, my great-grandfather, the Ezra Ben Yuda, uh, immigrated from Lithuania to Palestine in 1881. This is very, 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 very early Zionism. And I look at these people, and I say, "Wow, you know, we are so different. We are so pampered. I was born in my own state with my own culture. You know, I could have never, ever be so brave as they were. But they just did it."
2: What did the lullaby "Song for the Hyacinth" by Leah Goldberg mean to you? Can you explain its significance and meaning? <laughs>
1: It's a very, very, very famous lullaby in Israel. I think that all children hear it when their children sung mostly by their moms. And the rule that, so my mom was in charge of two radio networks in Israel, the only two radio networks that Israel had in the 60s and 70s. So she was actually the boss of all the singers and songwriters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she was very well educated when it came to songs and art, et cetera. And the rule she told myself and my brother about art was very simple. When it's really good, it's always about you which is very true about art, be it plastic art or songs or dance or you name it. You know, when it's really good, it touches and it touches your soul, hence it's about you. But one day she sang to me, uh, I was ill and she sang to me this lullaby and uh, and it really annoyed me because I said, you know, what you said is untrue. And she said, Why? And I said, because this song isn't about me. The song is about um, the hyacinth. We have a beautiful hyacinth in our garden, and and, uh, my son will go out to the garden and and, and, uh, celebrate with it, and they will celebrate rain, and everybody will be happy because the hyacinth is, is so beautiful. And I said, this song isn't about me. And my mom was shocked. She said, all the songs in the world are about you. Only about you. All songs in the world are about you. And I said, no, it's not true. And she said, why? And I said, because I do not have a hyacinth in my garden. And I do not go to celebrate with a hyacinth. And uh, hence, the rain is not celebrating me, etc. And my mom looked at me and she said, you don't understand. You're not the child, you're the highest him. You are everything. And uh, again, you know, growing up with such a mom is a privilege.
2: Can you tell us about Aunt Rina? What was so, her personality like?
1: Aunt Rina is my mom's sister. And as I said, she's the comic relief in our family. She loved me. She always told me, Gilly, I love you more than I love my children and uh, and she was crazy crazy totally crazy she always drove a, a tiny 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 fiat 500 it's a tiny red car convertible and policemen were terrified of her and um, she just had this original view of life for instance they, they had uh, two pharmacies my my aunt and uncle and and She worked in the pharmacy and she comes home one day and she said, today something wonderful happened at the pharmacy. said, what? And she said, uh, the president came to buy some aspirin or something. In the 60s and 70s, you know, it it would be the president that goes to buy his medicine, not, not a clerk or anything. And he came. And of course my, my aunt knew the president personally. Of so and she said that I talk with the president and then when he spoke to me uh, without meaning to, he, he spat and and it it, it it hit my nose and it clung to my nose and he was so embarrassed because it was on my nose and I couldn't wipe it away. And we were both very embarrassed until I had a wonderful solution And we said, what did you do? And she said, I spat at him back. He was very happy. So this is my aunt, Rina, and she was um, an immense light. When you're a kid and you're so educated, so firmly educated by your parents and your grandmother, you really need aunt Rina to, to bring oxygen into the room.
2: Can you tell us about your family's housekeeper, Aisha? What are your memories of her?
1: Um, Isha, as we called her, was a very grumpy, elderly Moroccan woman. Um, her story was that she came by ship to, uh, most Moroccans came to uh, Israel in the 50s by ship, uh, got off the ship and came immediately to our house and became our maid. My grandmother said, untrue. She worked at all the households in the neighborhood. Everybody threw her away until she clung to us. Um, she was sort of half a grandmother to me. Um, she she worked at our home six days a week, and um, we were a bit afraid of her. She would shout at us in Moroccan, which we sh- we did not understand. My grandmother. Uh, spoke Moroccan. So they would speak Moroccan between themselves. But, you know, from the tone of the shouting, you would understand what she wants. So she would chase us, chase us away from the room when she wanted to swipe the floors. And she would tell on us to my grandmother. And um, And we loved her, of course. We really did love her.
2: What would you say to the adolescent version of yourself as you present yourself in this memoir based on the person you are today and the life experience and wisdom you per- possess today, what would you, as an adult, say to the child version of you that comes up in this memoir based on the wisdom in life you have from later oh, in life?
1: First of all, wisdom, I don't know. Let's say experience.
2: Experience.
1: <laughs> a, a, I think optimism pays. It's good to be optimistic. I was brought up to be optimistic. I was brought up to trust the world and trust people. And it really paid. Life is wonderful. I have a wonderful partner. We have a wonderful daughter. I think I achieved all the important stuff. I'm not a billionaire and uh, you know, I'm not a big professor in the university. That's my partner, not myself but i have love i'm being loved i love my siblings and uh and it's great and uh, again as as i told you growing up as the weakest child as the smallest child as the frailest child sometimes i was a bit worried or sometimes i was a bit afraid or sometimes I was a bit left out when they would choose, you know, groups for basketball or whatever. Nobody would choose me. Um, but even as a child, I knew that everything would be okay. And as a 60 year old man, I can tell you
2: everything is. What do you think the child version of you, as you present yourself in the book, would say about the adult version of you today? What do you think the character that you present of yourself would say about the version of you that I'm talking to in this interview, in this dialogue, in conversation?
1: Um, I think that he would say what many people say in my family. He came out like the complete duplicate of Aunt Trina. He's totally nuts. Really? Yes.
2: Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> As as we bring our dialogue today to a close, I'd like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your availability, for your erudition, for your eloquence and everything you shared both in our conversation and also in this wonderful book.
1: Thank you very, very much. And you know, for me, it's a present because every every chance I get to to talk with people about my long-gone relatives it's as if it's as if they're with me and it's it's it it was an hour for me it was an hour of warmth and belonging and love so i do thank you for that
2: if you don't mind me asking what are you working on now as a next or current or subsequent project now that this is behind you
1: so I, I, the the trilogy, the Jerusalem trilogy, the three memoirs, uh, I was done with, I would say, 10 years ago or so. And then I shied away from writing about the family. I wrote other fiction books not connected to my family. But recently, I wrote another book about my family. I, um, during COVID and lockdowns, etc., I took that big, big, big box that I had of old love letters between my grandmother and my grandfather and read them, and they were so beautiful. And, you know, this is the first couple after 2,000 years that conducted its love story in Hebrew. Up until then, people loved in Arabic and French and Yiddish, but not in Hebrew. They are the first Jewish couple to fall in love in Hebrew in our history and uh, I decided that I must write a book about this love story and I did and uh, it's supposed to be out um, I would say in two or three months
2: amazing I wish you the best of luck with it it sounds like a marvelous and inspiring book Uh, I can't wait for readers (laughs) to get a hold of it
1: thank you very very much it was a pleasure.
2: Thank you. My honor Take uh, care. to our, to our listeners. Uh, I'm your host on the new books network, Ari Barbalat today. I have conducted an interview for our new, for our new books in Israel studies channel. Our interview has been conducted with Gil Hovav, who is a noted Israeli writer and television personality. We have been discussing his memoir, candies from heaven published in Barnsley, England by Green Bean Books 2022. Thank you, thank you.
1: Thank you, bye-bye.